Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneer's Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. There are lots of ways one might define a good leader, and many figures one could readily select as examples. But at Pioneer's Post, we're interested in a specific kind of leader. We're looking for those leaders who are both trying to make a difference and doing business differently. These are the leaders treading that fine line between money and mission for the benefit of people and planet. So welcome to the Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West, founding editor of PioneersPost.com. Hello and welcome to the Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West at Pioneers Post and my guest, Liam Black. Welcome, Liam. Hi, Tim. So, so great to be here. Nice to see you. Now, often I interview leaders about their journey setting up or growing one particular social business, but you're a bit different because you run a range of different purpose-driven businesses, your own and other people's, and I've actually had the pleasure of knowing you uh, during your time at most of them. You're now mentoring other leaders to do the same, and you've just published a book about purposeful leadership that we're going to be serialising in Pioneer's Post. Your book, uh, How to Lead with Purpose, is partly a story about your own journey as a purpose-driven leader, and it partly draws from your experiences mentoring others to do the same. So in the podcast, I'd like to explore some of your career journey and also draw out some of the lessons that you identify about social entrepreneurs leading in your book. So first of all, Liam, um, tell us about yourself. Who is Liam Black? What was your upbringing like? Uh, your home, your education, where did you come from? My favourite my favorite question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, can I just say, first of all, Tim, it's so great to be with you. We've known each other, what, for nearly 30 years now, when you were a young um, a, a journalist starting Social Enterprise uh, magazine, yeah. and uh, you collared me after a conference and said, you're going to write in my magazine. And I said, yes. I bet I'm not and, going to get and paid. Then... And you said, absolutely right. <laughs> so I'm about me. Um, I'm the son of Irish Catholic, Irish uh, immigrants. Uh, we were supposed to emigrate to the United States. Oh, wow. um, and then my dad went over to New York to try and find uh, somewhere for us to live and promptly disappeared. I was brought up by a single mum, mm. uh, went to Catholic schools, went to a Christian Brothers um, school, which was in a sort of a very mixed bag of experience. Um, being the oldest son of a, a, an Irish Catholic family, I had the delusion that I wanted to be a, become, become a Catholic priest um, and actually was uh, scheduled to go to the seminary in Easter at 1980. And in order to kill time, I went to a Catholic college to play in a basketball team. At the end of that first term, um, I, I met Maggie Sheehan and um, asked her out on my 19th birthday, and we've been, to, uh, been together um, ever since. So that's kind of the sort of family um, uh, story. D didn't, didn't go off and be a priest, thank God. I often say to Maggie, you know, if she hadn't diverted me, I could be a cardinal now, or maybe the first um, Irish passport-holding pope. And so how did that turn into being a social entrepreneur? What happened next? I think that, uh, so Ma Maggie and I, we went overseas as volunteers and uh, after I graduated in 82 and I ended up as a, bizarrely in some ways, a sort of PE teacher 
and special needs teacher um, in northern British Columbia um, in Canada, uh, which was uh, an, an amazing two years experience, uh, really. Came back from Canada, ended up completely by fluke up in Liverpool, working for the archdiocese up there as a sort of community um, organiser. And one of the jobs that I had was hosting visitors from overseas that the archbishop at the time didn't think were important enough for him. So if they weren't really important, he'd kind of palm them off down the corridor to me, which was great. So I met loads of really, you know, Jesuits from El Salvador and people involved in trying to overthrow Marcos um, and a lot of people from South Africa, because in the 80s, particularly second half of the 80s, um, the uh, anti-apartheid struggle was, was big news. And then through that, got to go to South Africa uh, a few times and was kind of uh, quite radicalized by all of that. And then uh, decided, I have to get into this full time. I, I have to overthrow apartheid. So I, for two years, I did that in a, um, what was basically a front for the ANC, um, fundraising and campaigning and, uh, uh, and so on. F um, fell pregnant, Maggie fell pregnant with our second son, Connor, during those years and decided that kind of backwards and forwards to South Africa at that time was, and traveling all around the place wasn't a good thing to do. So ended up working for um, uh, Crisis, the homelessness charity, um, uh, looking after the north of England for them and give, raising half the year raising money, the second half giving the money out. And we were really good fundraisers, like really good. And we ended up with more money than we literally could give away through our grant program. So uh, the trustees at the time asked us to see if we could find some really good things to get behind. So I convened a whole series of meetings all over the, the north of England. And at the one in Manchester Town Hall, I met Nick Francis and Robbie Davison from um, um, the Furniture Resource Centre in Liverpool, which was then a fairly sort of standard second-hand furniture charity. And I joined in with those. Uh, I authorised a grant of about 180 grand. And that began the transformation of the organisation, which we relaunched in 1994 um, as a social business, social enterprise. I took over as the CEO of that in 98. You were chair, um, first of all, weren't you? And then you I was chair, yeah. I, came, I, yeah. I joined the board to keep an eye on the money and then mm -hmm. um, became the chair, fell in love with the company and what I thought we could do with it. And then when uh, Nick Francis uh, decided to leave and go to Australia with his um, Australian wife, I applied for the job um, and I got mm. it. So that was my first major sort of socially entrepreneurial thing was running that organisation. I guess your your first foray into running a business as well. In your in your book, yeah. you talk a little bit about imposter syndrome. I guess um, I, how did you feel at that point? Did you feel perfectly confident to uh, no. be able to run a business at that point? Or? No, I uh, that that was when that sense. That's when my sort of fragile arrogance fell apart, really. And that sort of, um, uh, you know, that imposter, that feeling of, you know, wow, what am I doing here? And mm. although I did feel, I, I loved it. And I remember sitting on the sofa in my office overlooking the Mersey there. I was 37 then mm. and um, thinking, this is exactly where I want to be. Um, this is aligning all the things I'm interested in in, in an organisation. But there was a ter terrible sense of, um, I don't know what I'm doing and what's a balance sheet and um, <laughs> how do you price up products and how do you, how do you turn all this um, theory you've got about leadership, Liam, into actually being a CEO yeah. and not being too much of a dick and getting it all done. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, it was, it, it, it was intense. And was, I, I have to say, um, 
that after the first uh, six months, I thought I'd made a terrible mistake, um, uh, and uh, but was convinced by Alison Ball, who was my head of HR um, at the time, that I should stick it out. So I did. You're doing and a good ended job. Up staying for seven years. I, I wasn't. Like- do- I don't think I. I don't think I was doing a good job at that point. Tim, but I think maybe she saw in me some potential to do some good stuff in the future. I guess you also just got that taste of what it was like to run business that was also trying to do something good as well. Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, we we were um, in 94 when we relaunched the organization. We had a manufacturing base, a logistics company, a retail outlet. And then over the years, we created other businesses and there was a real sense then, sort of mid mid nineties to two thousands, that we were involved in something really interesting mm. that other people were very interested um, in. I mean, ninety seven Blair got elected, and the whole narrative about social entrepreneurs, social enterprise, all of that entered into sort of policy making and you know sort of political rhetoric. And it felt in Liverpool, uh, not just us, but some other social enterprises, we were actually showing on the ground what it could look like as well as it being a way of us liberating ourselves from the sort of tyranny of fundraising and yeah. the goodwill of foundations and the you know grant makers at the local authority so you've you've done frc group for a number of years and suddenly you you get this big opportunity to run almost out of the blue it seems but i i guess you had a reputation by then but um, the celebrity chef jamie oliver contacts you and says can you come and run a business for me so what what happened there how did that come about uh, interesting I mean I have the BBC to thank for this I think because mm. um, in about whenever it was 2002 something like that the BBC ran a, um, a series called uh, the hidden revolution about social entrepreneurs around the UK um, trying to uh, prove out a new sort of mod- new model of business and entrepreneurship and they featured me, I think they featured Tim at the Eden Project. However, I underestimated the reach of uh, Radio 4 and the BBC. So the response was amazing. And one of the people who responded was a man called Adrian Simpson, who in five years after that would become my business partner. Right. But at that time was working for What If, the innovation consultancy. And he had listened to it on the radio and said, that's really interesting. Uh, we're doing a conference on innovation. I've never heard of this social entrepreneurship thing what is it so he came to see me and then he said look come and speak at this conference and at that conference well that was that 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 was the first conference I went to it's called the garden shed and it was about innovation and how you um, take an idea from conception to scale that's how my speaking career began really and then um, a couple of years after that his next event was uh, the main speaker was Jamie Oliver and that's how I met Jamie. Um, and uh, that began the conversation which had me then leave Liverpool after 20 years. We ne- I never thought we would leave. Kids brought up there, mm. you know, fantastic network of friendship and, and, and business contacts. Yeah, big decision, so big decision for it you. It was a really family, big yeah. decision. It still, was a really big decision. Family's still quite young as well. Yeah, my daughter had just started um, secondary school. Um, and uh, Matthew was away at university. Connor was still at home, mm. and um, uh, it, yeah, it was it was quite a decision to go. And again, it felt like the wrong decision after right. after the first few months. I remember walking up um, the hill here near where we live um, uh, about 
Christmas. We came down in the September. This was the Christmas of that year, 2004, I think it was. And uh, Maggie You're had come down. You're in Buckinghamshire now, aren't you? Is that yeah, we live near yeah. Aylesbury. Yeah, yeah. And um, we were walking up Coombe Hill, and uh, I said to Maggie, "I'm just, I'm just going to say this out loud. I think we've made a mistake." <laughs> um, I, I just really underestimated um, the the challenge it would be of leaving behind a network and a a, a persona and a and an organisation that I'd been involved with so intimately for so long coming down to a new industry, you know, um, in London. And it suddenly dawned on me, I was, a, I, was a, I, was a, I was a big fish in a little pond in Liverpool, and then suddenly I'm in the ocean of London. And that took, yeah. that took some getting used to. Um, but we were able to, um, uh, you know, get our act together. And, uh, and you know, in retrospect, it was a, a terrific move in all sorts of ways. Mm. I just remind us of the, the business model at, at Jamie Oliver's restaurant. It's called 15, no longer with us. But, but what was the idea? Yeah, well, the idea was it, it came out of a TV show called Jamie's Kitchen, yeah. uh, which was broadcast in 2002, I think, which sort of followed the sort of, attempt by Jamie to open a restaurant that would put um, young people who needed a break at the heart of the business. Mm. And uh, there were 15 of them, and that's why it was called um, 15. But once the uh, television lights were turned off and the cameras left, then the hard work started, which was trying to turn it into a sustainable business. Mm. And I met Jamie about just about about a year after it had the first one had opened in Old Street in London, and it wasn't going very well. It was losing a lot of money, and there was no there was no joined upness between the social purpose of trying to help these youngsters and the business of trying to run a top end restaurant in a yeah. brutally competitive um, market. Um, so that's that's how it came together, and then that's how I came down, and then was in charge of. Um, trying to turn 15 from a great idea um, on the telly um, into a sustainable business that could be replicated. And that's mm. what I did then for the better part of um, four, four-ish years mm. um, after that. Yeah, but it was, it was, quite, a, it was quite a struggle, com- a wrench leaving Liverpool and coming down. Yeah. But it was an amazing experience um, that I had. And we opened in Cornwall and Melbourne and Amsterdam. And we inspired... Um, copycat 15s all over the world mm. um you know from you know saigon to sao paulo people were inspired what what by what we did which was incredibly mm. satisfying mm. so you you're doing well you've got this fantastic high profile job helping a famous chef turn around the lives of disenfranchised young people but then something changes and there's a there's a moment you describe in your book when you're at this big celebration with Jamie and all the young chef apprentices, um, and they've just graduated, and you you describe it as as it should have been one of the highlights of your career, but you say you feel awful, you're hating it, and you yeah. decided at that point, well, you 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 need to go, um, but you also say you really badly mishandled your exit, and then you. I did. You say, um, you know, you, you describe fear and anxiety, which was so great that you, you couldn't share it with Maggie, your wife. Um, and, and clearly you're describing a, a moment in your life when you're in a real sort of place of personal crisis. Um, but it also seems to, to mark a very important sort of turning point in your life. And you go on to explain in your, in your book um, the importance of what you describe as aligning the idea of purpose and platform. So, I mean, that's quite a lot 
um, to cover. But could could you unpack that experience? Uh, you know, yeah. how, how were you feeling? Why was what was bad? Where were you in your head and your heart? And how did you how did you unravel from it? So it was, you know, if you'd looked in from the outside, there I was on stage, hundreds and hundreds of people, cabinet ministers, mm. celebrities, uh, Jamie, all these, all the dozens and dozens of youngsters and so on. Um, uh, amazing. And it was amazing. You know, it really, really was. But I, it was, you know, the, for the six months leading up to that had been really difficult. The, the was a hell of a lot of work, a hell of a lot of traveling. And then other stuff that, you know, uh, you know wouldn't be appropriate for me to talk about. Mm. But it led me to this point where it was like, th- there's a misalignment between my purpose, which was, I want, I want to do some really good stuff in the world, mm. and the platform that I was on, which is not the right place for me anymore. Mm. But rather than being uh, uh, mindful about that and sort of thinking my way out, I think I panicked a little bit. Um, I was drinking too much, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, I'd wake up with my heart beating out of my chest, you know, and uh, I thought, hmm, I, I need to do something here. And I, I badly I badly handled it. I mean, Jamie and the team were great. And, mm. you know, uh, we left friends and uh, I carried on doing a little bit of consultancy work and we launched a, a social report about the business. But I, I should have got myself a mentor and a coach. I should have really, really thought about what it means to kind of change, to move out of something like that and the sort of radical change in status, perception, mm. uh, what I'm doing, you know, as well as just the, the pace at which um, um, I was working. And um, it's, at the time, it was, you know, it was, it was horrible. Mm. And I, didn't, I, didn't, I should have talked more to Maggie about it. I should have been a lot more honest about where I was at. Mm. And I made a couple of decisions as a result of that. One that I would only ever work in, um, um, I, I would never be someone's employee ever again. Yeah. Um, and also that uh, I would be way more careful and mindful about managing my energy, my fear, my anxiety, my ambition mm. when it would come to the next um, transitions in my life, and I've had you know, since then um, two, and I'm I'm in the middle of one right now actually. Mm. Um, so it was horrible at the time, and it would be easy to kind of um, you know make it sound less horrible than it was in retrospect. But I did learn from it. There's no, there's no mm. doubt about that, um, and it and, and it was all on me. It was all my doing in not handling it properly. You, you you mentioned that you the words you used are tumbled out of Jamie Oliver world yeah. I think yeah um, and you co-founded this new business wavelength leadership courses and tours for leaders from corporates non-profits and and public sector and again it was very successful and actually very. quite glamorous at times as well lots of tours to the states you found yourself in you know Google HQ and all that sort of stuff didn't you lots of Silicon yeah. Valley hot shots and things yeah. uh, who hosted you but after several years again so you're happy about some of it but but you you describe this unhappiness and resentment creeping in again and you decide to step away yeah. and there, there seems to have been a a tipping point that you reached triggered by um what i detect is this sort of ongoing sufferance of corporate bullshit and you cite a particular <laughs> incident when yeah. a tech company you were advising was glossing over why it, it didn't pay its fair share of tax um so partly that and also 
you also just happened at that point to have become a grandfather. And there seemed to have been some sort of, I suppose, clash in your mind of, of the sort of the values that you wanted to have as a grandfather and the values that you were seem to be perpetuating, you know, going off to Silicon Valley. And and you end up leaving Wavelength. Um, yeah. And, and you, you say that you did that initially by creating a diagram and two lists on your phone. Yeah. So what, yeah. what did those lists tell you and why is that something that... Yeah, so Wavelength was... Uh, you know, we had a cross-subsidy business model mm. which enabled you know, loads of social entrepreneurs, non-profit leaders and public sector leaders to participate in our programs, which, as you say, we ran in Silicon Valley, all over Europe, Bangladesh, mm -hmm. India, um, for those to participate as peers with, the, with their better paid and, uh, and better resourced peers in the, in the, in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, and, but for me, Wavelength was a passion cross-subsidy platform. Mm -hmm. So it enabled me to uh, work you know, where, where I'm at my best and I'm, I, I love being, which is working with, social entrepreneurs, people trying to create businesses that really want to make a difference in the world. Mm. Um, and I was able to, we were able as a company to hold that within what we did because down the other end, we were going to Silicon Valley and charging, you know. Um, Making lots of high, money out of high, your corporates, yeah. <laughs> high, yeah, charging high fees to do amazing, to, 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 to create amazing experiences for them. Mm. And for, you know, seven and a half of the 10 years that I was there, that worked really, really well. And we did some amazing stuff. We created a pioneering impact fund called IV UK. Mm -hmm. uh, we transformed Deloitte's um, uh, CSR program. There's a whole series of things that we did as a result of mm -hmm. the impact that we had in the lives of um, uh, many of our clients. But as you say, there was a kind of moment where I was sitting listening to, uh, you know, I asked a question about, well, that's all very well, what you're doing around the world, but isn't the most progressive thing you could do pay tax properly in the yeah. territories where you make your money? And I got a really poor answer about, I don't know, spending money on balloons to bring Wi-Fi to Kenyan villages or something, right. which is in itself, there's nothing wrong with that, but it didn't answer the question. Mm. And I remember thinking, what the bloody hell am I doing here? Mm. You know, I've had enough of this now. And so on the plane coming back, you know, I, I spent all of the time um, thinking about, you know, is this the right thing to do? I mean, how old was I then? I was in my well into my fifties. You know, by, again by any stretch, doing a, interesting work with interesting people, business partners who were most of the time we were in alignment and doing really good stuff. And people loved us. People, you know, we were sold out on everything we ever put out there into mm. the world. But I decided, as you say, having had a my first grandchild. You know, I, as you know, I, I am a bit of a sort of over, overthinking, recovering Catholic, um, Tim. So I have a bit of a sort of, I, I, I'm easily tipped into angst. Um, and I don't know, I mean, having a grandkid, you know, really made me sort of think about Christ, you know, what's my position in the universe now? My evolutionary work here is done. I can crawl off into the forest and, and die now. And I thought, no, actually going into my 60s, the commitment I'm going to make to myself, mm. to my grandchildren and to Maggie is that um, I will just do stuff I want to do and uh, uh, um, I, I, I was in the fortunate position of not having to worry too much about having stuff that I didn't want to do um, in my life anymore. Mm. So that's how I got to that point. Um, and, uh, as, yeah, and then my business partners were great and we were able to do, I think, a real model 
ending of a business partnership mm. where we didn't fall, we didn't fall out. Um, we had a, a, an authentic leaving do for me, yeah. and I was able to exit really, really well. And they continued to thrive and, and thrive to this day um, uh, without me, which I'm, I'm, mm. I'm really, really grateful for. And that allowed me to sort of tip into my 60s now um, uh, doing the stuff I want to do. So you went on then to start your mentoring business. Yeah. And, and from this, you, you have drawn all sorts of interesting lessons and stories that you share in your book. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at some of those a bit more in a minute. But that wasn't quite the end of, of your career story. And although you say that your time with Jamie uh, Jamie Oliver was the last time you, you said it was the last time you'd work as the boss in someone else's business. Actually, you have been running two other businesses, haven't you? I have. So you, you one a mental health business called Together All, and the other one being the Conduit Club, which is this exclusive members club in London's Covent Garden. So tell us briefly about those two organisations and what yeah. persuaded you to do what you said you wouldn't do initially. Yeah, yeah, you're right to point out the contradictions there. So um, the so if you go back five years, mm. uh, or it was almost five years ago now that I um, uh, so five years ago I was sitting in my office at the bottom of my garden, yep. having left wavelength, going, "What the fuck have I done?" Right. You know, I've I've stepped off this amazing. Uh, it was it was that moment where sort of <laughs> you know commitment and bravery hits. Shit, what are you going to do now, Liam? You're only sixty, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, well, fifty, whatever I was in fifty eight. Um, and um, uh, I got a call, and I got a call from uh, Kevin Bone, who was the um, is the lead partner on the Impact uh, Ventures UK fund, right. and we one of our big invest well, on whose investment committee I, I I had sat from the beginning and continue to sit. And that's the um, same and, fund that Wavelength helped to start up, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. One yeah. of our clients. It was in Bangladesh. We went to Bangladesh, and yeah. Richard Brass, who was then at Schroders decided he would create a fund to invest in social entrepreneurs who wanted to change the world. Yeah. And that's where that fund came from. Um, and I helped him fundraise and, and, and sit, on the, sit on the IC. Yeah. Anyway, fast forward then to uh, five or six years into that fund, well, no, f- five years into that fund, I get a call from Kevin saying, look, we've got this, as you know, Liam, we've invested in a company which at that point was called the Big White Wall, mm. an online anonymized platform for people isolated by depression and anxiety yeah and it was it was struggling it was it was struggling the founder had left the year before and it was really struggling and he said would you go in and have a look at this with the mandate of do we kill it or do we keep it and I went in and I uh, there was lots wrong with it but I could see there was something amazing there Um, and uh, went back to him and said look I think we should kill it probably need to invest a little bit more money and he said, well, will you stay and um, lead the turnaround? Mm. So I said I would. Um, and uh, the reason I said I would was I could see the impact it was having in the lives of, you know, still thousands of people at that time. I mean, it's tens and tens of thousands of people now. Mm. But it was having a significant impact in the lives of people who were really isolated by um, depression and anxiety. And its mission of democratizing access to digital mental health and removing the stigma around mental health was real. And I thought, mm, wouldn't it be interesting to try and make this um, uh, uh, bigger and, uh, and better? So that's what happened. So that, I stayed there and then we recruited, we raised some more money, rebuilt the platform, recruited an exec team, recruited a CEO in Henry Jones, who's amazing. And then I was able to step out three years ago um, and just as I am now be a uh, non-exec 
right. director there. So that's where the that one came from. Mm. And then The Conduit came, again, was completely out of the blue. Um, I got a phone call from Bob Toost, who I got to know when he was at Deloitte, yep. when they were on the Wavelength program. Okay. And I think, I think he would say, he would agree that uh, the Wavelength program changed his life and the trajectory of his career dramatically. Yes, and he, he had just, just been... He decided to leave Deloitte almost as a result did, of that. Yeah, he? he did. Yeah, yeah. We were in some ways you could see Wavelengths as quite a cheap exit <laughs> uh, program for uh, um, uh, corporate leaders who aren't, aren't that happy anymore. Um, anyway, Bob called me, and, mm. and unbeknownst to me, he had been brought in by the board of the Conduit, which had collapsed. The yeah. Mayfair business uh, had collapsed in November 2020 as a result of um, a combination of all, all sorts of things yeah the catalyst being covid mm. um and he said they can only agree on a couple of things one is um they want to drive this forward and open a, another site and the second thing is they want new boards and the only person they can agree on to offer the role to is you yeah are, are you up for it and so i said yeah i had been a sort of arms a semi-detached member of the the conduit in mm. um in mayfair and I thought, this will be interesting. And I said, I'll stay for a couple of years. And, um, uh, and that couple of years is, is up now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm leaving the board of um, uh, The Conduit shortly. And in that time, we've, I've created two new boards. We've raised a load of money. We have opened in Covent Garden. We've recruited mm-hmm. um, hundreds and hundreds of new members. Uh, we've revitalized the uh, Conduit Connect, which is the platform that in, invests in social entrepreneurs yep. um, and we've we've agreed the global rollout strategy and we're opening in oslo in the first half of this year okay um and you're stepping and down been, completely yeah. are you yeah, yeah yeah i am so I'm, you stayed um, in together all as a, as a ned as a i stayed in together all as a ned yeah yeah, yeah. But, I, I, but i think that i've had such an influence in the conduit chairing mm-hmm. both the holding company board and the um, uh, the club board. Yeah. That I think I think a clean break is is the best for me, and I think it's the best for everyone there. That the, that new generation of leadership that has come in, or that I've mm. brought in. Um, I, I don't want to be the old bloke, you know, saying, "Well, I, I did that." And, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think it's much better. I go. They've they've given yeah. me a lifelong membership. Yeah. Um, so I'll be around uh, nice. a lot. I, I I I love it. I think the conduit is a great. Um, um, idea, but I took that one on because I thought I could really make the difference, and there was a time limit mm. um, to it. So on the conduit, I, I have to grill you on this. So some, yeah. some of our audience <clears throat> will definitely look at this exclusive members club in central London and view it as precisely the type of privileged, hypocritical home of <laughs> pseudo purposeful bullshit, ego driven, self congratulatory swagger that you often criticise in your book. Yeah. So it's about two grand to join, 3K for investors, um, non-profits pay a little bit less. It's even 600 quid for students. So are they being unfair? Is it unfair to level that at something like the conduit? I mean, lots of people in part of this world of purpose feel completely detached from something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it, I think it, I think it is unfair. I think the mm. the danger, the 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 real danger of becoming what I've called a Taj Mahal of virtue signaling. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's in your book, uh, isn't it? Yeah. It, it? yeah, is is very real. There's, there, there is no doubt about that. Yeah. But no, I think that um, 
uh, I, I don't think it's any of the things that you've said. So in terms of it, I think a couple of things to say. It is not for everybody. Yep. We are not, we are, it's not a sort of open door for everyone in the world. There is a Just people who can afford model. it. <laughs> to, to people who can afford it. But it's, not, it's, it's more than can afford it. It's for whom that's going to be useful. Okay. Yeah. So if you are um, in London and you need a place to work mm -hmm. and you need a place to bring your clients and you want to be part of a community where you could find investment mm -hmm. and you can find mentors and you can find new board members, it, it, it's a great place to be. You also not only get access as a member to all of that, uh, you also get access to our program of events, which I think is genuinely world-class. So you can mm -hmm. hear everyone from Nobel Peace Prize winners like Malala. We had 500 people that come to the club to hear her. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, there's all sorts of things. During the Ukraine war, we hosted uh, uh, at the beginning live uh, um, uh, events where people were beaming in from uh, uh, the Ukraine and other parts of um, the world. We've raised a fortune for all sorts of um, uh, uh, things like that. And as well as the sort of set piece program, you as a member can convene free of charge in some of the spaces in the building, the conversations that you want to have. You can also, if you're a social entrepreneur and you need to access you know, a couple of hundred grand, half a million, a million pounds, we have a platform called Connect, which will enable you to pitch your idea to um, uh, uh, angel investors, mm. Uh, who are who are who are interested in the kind of things that entrepreneurs who join the conduit uh, bring to it, and we've done about twenty million pounds through that uh, since we reopened. So it's I think we need to be really clear about what it is. It is not a sort of open house sure. for everybody. It is if you are at a certain stage of the development of your um, social enterprise. I think it's an incredibly uh, valuable investment of um, up to two up to two grand um, uh, to spend two grand on being plugging yourself into that community and mm. I see every week Tim um, entrepreneurs doing amazing work both in the UK and in Africa and Latin America who come up to me and go it's amazing. I've just landed this investment or I've just found this person to come onto my board right. or I've just been to this amazing event where I was able to connect with people. I'll give you, I'll give you one example of the impact that we're having. Mm. We, had, there's, um, we hosted the international uh, conference of organizations involved in tackling uh, FGM, female genital yep. mutilation and yep. violence against women and girls. And we got loads of people at the club and then we had people beaming in from all over the world. One of the pe people who was at that meeting is a member of the club. She's a consultant pediatrician at King's Hospital. Yeah. Um, and as a direct result of the connections that she made there, she convened the people in London who are resp the clinicians responsible for tackling um, FGM. And they have changed the way they do things for the better mm. as a direct result of the expertise and the new networks that she was able to plug into at the um, at the club, mm. so um, you know, and, and I've got lots of stories like that where I feel that the effort that I've personally put in, and the, and I know the other directors have, mm. uh, in order to to build in that community, that it does have those positive impacts, and there's there's so many more um, like them. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Have we got more work to do? Absolutely. Is it a valuable place to be? 
if in your social impact journey, mm-hmm. you are at a certain stage of development, 100% um, uh, it is. Um, and I think that people need to, those, those, those who say those things uh, 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 about, uh, about us obviously have the right um, to say them. Sure. But uh, then I would ask, well, you know, you're not, if, if you want a place that's free of charge for everybody to go, then we're not it. And why don't you set it up yourself and uh, I'll give you some support um, in doing that. Mm-hmm. I guess in this world of, you know, where we see a lot of impact washing and greenwashing, yeah. impact itself, authenticity is quite fragile, isn't it? And Oh, well, yeah, yeah. It, it absolutely, it, it absolutely is. And I think that, you know, the conduit is a real high wire act because mm. not only um, do we need to uh, run a successful business, yeah, uh, and it is a business. We have investors. Uh, we had to raise, um, uh, we raised about seven million in order to get the place open, mm. uh, which in central London is peanuts, um, uh, and we probably should have raised a bit more. Um, not only do we have to do that, we have to uh, run a hospitality business. We employ over 100 people um, now to do that. And that's hard. Mm. That's hard. We want to be a great employer um, and we want to be an ethical hospitality business. We try and source as much of our um, uh, stuff from uh, ethical uh, businesses and social Fine enterprises. Change, yeah. And we yeah we we do blue water and we do camel's coffee and we do all of that at scale we're, we're spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on all that sort of stuff as well as being a place that uh, where our members can really feel that their hmm. investment in their membership is is in, is positively impacting them and their organization sure um, yeah and 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 do that on six floors in a building in um in Covent Garden so it's it is a bit of a high wire act but, you know, I think that if you look at the people who are on the board, you look at the people that we are employing, everyone is incredibly mindful mm. that we need to stay real and authentic about that. And the, there is a thin line between that and stepping over into, you know, virtue signalling and the kind of bullshit sure. that um, you were talking about there. OK, I'll leave the conduit alone now. <laughs> OK, I, I want to ask about leadership a bit more generally now and and your experience as being of being a leader um so a few questions what's the greatest challenge that you've had to face how did you deal with it i think i i had a little think about this there have been loads have been loads of them you know you know, uh, stupid ideas like, well, uh, we we you know, we opened a ben and jerry's ice cream store in chester you know when i, I was remember in, that. Which, you know, um, you know, it looked fantastic in San Francisco. Uh, not so great in the sort of winter of a uh, UK winter, and we lost hundreds of thousands of pounds on that. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was that was a challenge. Um, uh, you know, Create was an organisation that span out of FRC. We had to close that because it wasn't working. That was really hard um, thing um, uh, uh, to do. But well, I think that the no, I was going to say were those were those also your biggest mistakes your biggest failures would you yeah say? yeah big, biggest mistake and failures but i think the big the times where i have felt i have really uh, uh, let everyone down mm. isn't particularly around business models because i'm you know shit happens in business yeah. things fail sometimes what looks like a great thing actually isn't and it and it fails and you go okay that didn't work that's kind of it's it's hard but it, it's kind of okay the big failures for me in my leadership have been when I haven't stayed true to my values. 
where I have employed the wrong people, where I have let wishful thinking get in the way. Um, th- those have been the places where I feel I fail because I often let people down because as yeah. a CEO or the chair of something, I think the biggest responsibility you have is to protect the strength and the positivity of the culture. Mm. And it's very easy to spoil that. And um, you know, when I have spoiled that by my own behavior or by allowing in people who uh, were able to bullshit bullshit their way through mm. and then I've had to kind of unpick that, those I feel are my biggest failures in leadership rather than okay. particular business decisions or business ventures that haven't worked. How about your proudest moment? Oh, there's been loads. I've been really blessed. I mean, you know, watching young people who, you know, without us would have either been dead or back in prison at 15. Mm. The hundreds and hundreds of people that have moved on to decent work through um, FRC. Mm. You know, I mentioned Mo earlier on, the doctor and the FGM thing. There's, There's loads of those sorts of things. But I think... Uh, you know, looking back, I think the thing I am most proud of is the fact FRC is still there, mm. is the fact that 15 lasted 10 years after I left, you know, is the fact, fingers crossed, yeah. that the conduit will survive uh, my departure, that I haven't built organisations around me mm. and have brought in the talent and the resources that's needed for it to survive the departure of anybody. Mm. Um, yeah. But, just just one thing that I was very proud of with the mental health business, you know, we had to work really hard there, raise a lot of money, rebuild the platform, just all sorts of all sorts of things. Yeah. And then I heard about from our clinicians that in northern Alberta, we had been able to reach uh, native Canadian women who are some of the most abused, vulnerable, mm. um, dispossessed uh, people in that country and beyond. Um, we were able to get mental health services to them via their um, uh, smartphones, um, uh, which was independent of the men in their life, independent of the state, independent of lots of things that were part of their oppression Mm. and were able to create a community um, amongst themselves and beyond. And again, I thought, yeah, I'm I'm pretty proud of the role that I played in helping create the Mm. business that's able Mm. to do that. And when I... You know, when I see the feedback from people on the platform that, you know, we have literally last year saved lives of people who said they were going to uh, uh, kill themselves and didn't yep. um, and, and, and attribute that to being part of our community. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Mm. Yeah. But I do want to ask you about that whole idea of leadership, burnout and mental health. Obviously, you've you've run an organisation together all, which is about mental health. But actually, you you talk a lot in your book, and you deal a lot with people who are, I guess, on the edge of burnout. Um, and I and I wondered, is do you think this is a particularly big problem for purpose driven leaders? And and what lessons do you think yeah. you could share on how to deal with it? Yes, I I do. I have met I I have myself, and I have met lots of let's call them social entrepreneurs, mm. you know, people who want to change the world, who are, have, all of the, have all of the challenges and burdens that come with running an organization, raising the money, looking after people, mm. paying your tax, all of that sort of stuff. But there's a whole other level then of anxiety about are we achieving the purpose that we want? And, and sometimes that then turns up as people you know, worrying um, that you know they have to save all of the homeless people in the world, or mm-hmm. they have to. They are the ones that have to solve climate change. Michelle Morgan is in the book. You know the ex-Liberty 
um, founder yeah. uh, who talks about you know being feeling really mentally oppressed by this drivenness that it was her responsibility not only to save all the young people at liberty but to save all young people yeah. that weren't weren't getting a fair crack so i think it is perilously easy for a really amazing mission to sour into a burden right. and um, a, a, a mental health challenge. And I, I, in the people I mentor, I talk about that a lot. And I think the way to deal with it is by talking about it, mm. by looking after, looking after your physical health um, and trying to learn the skill of taking what we're engaged with seriously, but not taking ourselves too seriously in yeah. it. And I think if we can get to all of that, um, then I think we have an opportunity to thrive trying to change the world rather than being oppressed by it and becoming mm. part of the problem. So what happens in the next five years then? Is there a plan? Or No, no plan. No. I will continue to uh, mentor people that walk across my path and ask me to do it. I'm going to write another book um, once the sort of smoke is cleared on this one. This is going to be about a lot of the stuff we've talked about. Mm. How, how do you get to know yourself as a leader and what... In, what everything that has gone before, how has it influenced you? Mm. Not even sure I published that. It might just be for my own mm. uh, benefit. Um, I'm going to do a lot more traveling um, and I'll be as present I, as I can be uh, to my family. So last question. If you could step back in time now and mentor a young Liam Black, what point would you choose to meet your younger self and what would be the key piece of advice that you'd offer? Oh, that's a, such a great question. I think there's two two points I would like to encounter myself if it wasn't too frightening for this old ball guy <laughs> to walk in the room. One would be when I took over FRC in Liverpool mm. and I was sitting on that sofa feeling very um, insecure. Um, would be, you know, trust yourself, Liam. You know, trust, trust yourself in your clearer moments when you believe actually you have got what it takes to do this. Mm. You're right. Um, so, so, so trust yourself. Um, and then the other time would be uh, at the tumbling out moment of Jamie. It would have been a couple of months before that where I said, well, I said okay, I'm going to stick around as your mentor for the next few months mm. because you need um, somewhere, uh, someone that you can trust and somewhere safe where you can go to uh, talk about your fears yeah. and your hopes for the future. Mm. I wouldn't mind him now, actually. It would be a bit weird if I turned up to myself now, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, um, I'm pretty clear what the next phase looks like Brilliant So we normally end these these podcasts with some quick fire questions that I haven't sent you but it's literally just um, you choose between one word or another so I'm going to fire a few things at you Okay, shoot And I just want you to choose one or the other Okay, so here we go Profit or purpose? Purpose Business or charity? Business. Equity or debt? Uh, equity. Corporate or cooperative? Uh, pass. <laughs> you can't pass. Cooperative, as long as you don't mean that sort of in a theological way about a business okay. model. <laughs> Newspaper or tablet? Newspaper. Novel or Netflix? Netflix. Art or science? Art. Bowie or Springsteen? That's not a choice, Bowie. Coffee or tea? Coffee, black. Bloody Mary or a glass of Burgundy? Uh, Burgundy. A stroll through Paris or a walk in the countryside? Uh, A stroll through Paris out to the countryside. Family feast or meal for two? 
Feast. Bill Gates or Steve Jobs? Jobs. Muhammad Yunus or Muhammad Ali? <laughs> I'd have to say Yunus, wouldn't I? <laughs> Maniac or Minder? Maniac. Clarity or Courage? Oh, that's another good one. Clarity. Stopping the bullshit or stopping the bullying? <laughs> stopping the bullying. Together all or conduit? Oh. I, I can't choose. Honestly. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you had to? No. If I had to, uh, together all. Making a difference or happiness? Happiness. Evolution or revolution? Evolution. Liam Black, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Tim. You've been listening to Good Leaders with me, Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post. If you like what you hear or have comments, questions or suggestions for guests, then please get in touch via Twitter at Pioneers Post or email goodleaders at pioneerspost.com. 